If you follow the news closely, that you surely understand that recently one of the important messages that came out of North Korean government and regarding the relationship with the neighboring country, which is South Korea. Now, under the current leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, officially abandoned this unification goal with the South Korea. Now, what does that mean to the international community? And some scholars believe now just because the announcement came out that Kim Jong-un surely does not want to start a war with South Korea right away. And given the fact we've seen a lot more military joint exercise between South Korea and America at this moment. And also remember, 2024 is such a crucial year for America. Not only we're looking at this ongoing presidential election, but also the foreign policy is at stake at the same time. Now, who is going to become the next person can actually, what we say, to save, or at least we can bring back the negotiation between North Korea and America. But now, at this moment, we have no answer. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Jenny Town. Again, Jenny, it's a senior fellow at the Stimson Center, and she's the director of the Stimson's 30A North program. Her expertise in North Korea, U.S.-DPRK relations, and U.S.-ROK alliance, and Northeast Asia regional security. Well, Jenny, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Well, it's always good to be here. Well, Jenny, let's get started right away. As I mentioned in the intro, recently one important message that came out of the North Korean government that North Korean government officially denounces the neighboring country, South Korea, as an enemy state and also completely abandoned this unification goal. As I mentioned before, some scholars believe that so far we do not have any evidence that Kim Jong-un wants to start a war and to base on the message, but you're the expert. What should we make of the message regarding this abandonment of the unification and also why now? Well, I, I think we need to be a little bit careful. Um, you know, in the rhetoric that, uh, that Kim Jong-un has used, he didn't actually... Um, he didn't actually abandon reunification as a goal. Mm. He abandoned the principles of peaceful reunification. And I think that's um, important um, that there's still a kind of long-term vision for unification. Um, but the idea that it's going to come about peacefully, that there's a, a reason to maintain the special status of the relationship um, that uh, that his grandfather Kim Il Sung actually established the principles for, that's gone, um, and that really shows the gravity of the situation. Because I know there's a lot of people that are like, "Is this just temporary? Is it just a political ploy?" Um, but no, for him to actually criticize his grandfather, the the founder of the North Korean states, you know, the deity. Um, that, you know, is built up, uh, that Kim Il-sung is built up to be. This is a very big move, um, both for Kim Jong-un's own personal legacy, political legacy, as well as for the relationship itself. And so, you know, being able to treat um, South Korea as a separate state um, and move forward in that direction, um, I, I, you know, I don't think we fully know the the full ramification of what that means. Um, but it does, you know, signal the idea that, you know, first of all, that the North Koreans don't, 
you know, see a reason to maintain a special status. And I think, you know, in 2018, 19, when um, President Moon in South Korea was so forward leaning on North Korea and Mm. wanted to do so much, um, but was unable to move forward. I think it really just reinforced, um, you know, perceptions in Pyongyang that, you know, that South Korea can't do anything without the international community's backing. And therefore, why maintain that, you know, special status if if there isn't um, some reason and some benefit to doing so? Well, but Jenny, let's take this question one step further. Now, this year, on January the 15th, Kim Jong-un made a speech to the Supreme People's Assembly, according to the reliable source, that Kim vowed to rewrite the North Korean constitution that labeled the government in Seoul as his country's primary foe, and he called for the destruction of various symbols of Korean cooperation, including an unused cross-border rail line and a massive nine-story monument to the goal of Korean unification that his father constructed in Pyongyang. Now, again, understand that right now, it's unclear regarding the next step that based on this announcement, but meanwhile, again, just look at the rhetoric, Jenny, you're the expert. They try to rewrite, excuse me, vow to rewrite the North Korean constitution and label the government in uh, in Seoul as the country's primary foe. What changed? I remember last time you and I, we had the conversation, we focused on the relationship between North Korea and Russia. And also we talk about this ongoing military exercise between South Korea and the U.S., but I wouldn't say things were better back in the days, but it seems like within a couple months, or even just say after the new year, things changed. He was going to rewrite the constitution, and he div- he uh, announced that the Seoul as the country's primary foe. What do we make of that? Again, what changed? Well, you know, this change doesn't necessarily... It wasn't necessarily just in the last couple of months. Um, there has not been good inter-Korean relations since 2019. Mm. Um, and again, a lot of that was a lot of overcommitment from the Moon administration as to what South Korea was willing to do, what it thought it could do, and you know the the disappointment on the and the disillusionment on the North Korean side when it didn't happen was was substantial. Um, so you know this relationship has been. Um, really non-existent since 2019 um, and has been getting worse because of, um, you know, increasing U.S., South Korea, you know, deepening alliance, um, deepening, you know, military cooperation within that alliance, the back-to-back military exercises. Um, And I think there is sort of a recognition where if South Korea cannot move forward on an inter-Korean agenda, um, independent from the international community, um, and the rhetoric that comes out of South Korea does also talk about North Korea in a very hostile way, um, you know, why, why maintain the facade, right? And, And South Korea has also talked about Um, for several years now, eliminating like the Ministry of Unification and Mm. also rethinking reunification. So, like I said, you know, North Korea did not denounce reunification as a goal. They denounced the idea that peaceful reunification can be achieved. 
Um, and it's sort of a recognition if it's going to happen, it's not going to be peaceful. Um, but, you know, they also point to signs in South Korea that really when South Korea talks about unification now, it's very different than what they used to. Um, so, you know, South Korean vision for the future is a free and unified, you know, under a democratic government, um, Korean Peninsula. Well, you know, that in and of itself is an existential threat to North Korea and to the regime. Um, so I, I think there's there's a lot of, you know, all of this has been brewing for quite several years, actually. Um, and I, I think there's the, you know, right now what you're seeing in North Korea is continuation of a, of a really fundamental shift in their foreign policy and their worldview that we've been seeing really manifest itself um, in the past couple of years, again, after the disillusionment of, of 2019. So a lot of de-risking, a lot of um, really shifting its foreign policy um, towards more sympathetic states, um, some, you know, real kind of, there's a certain sense of beating South Korea to the punch as well, mm. um, instead of allowing South Korea to, to control the narrative on, you know, reunification um, and whether or not this special status could be achieved that the, the North Koreans are, are saying, hey, if, if there's no reason to preserve this, we're not going to preserve it. So Jenny, again, we are in the year of 2024. When we talk about this unification plan what does that include by the way i mean again you, you emphasize many times it's different right i mean it's not that what kim jong-un's father or you know even all those uh, uh predecessors had be mind before but specifically for the current north korean government and perhaps even for the south korean government what does that mean when we try to define the unification plan between the two countries, or even perhaps from the perspective of the North Korean government. What is that, by the way? Well, it's worth remembering, in 2000, the two Koreas um, signed a, a, a joint vision for unification. And at that time, it was one country, two governments. It was a confederation. Mm. Um, when, when both Koreas talk about reunification, over the past several years, um, you know, the North Koreans have stuck to that notion of one country, two governments that was and, and often refer back to that 2000 agreement when they talk about reunification. Um, but the South Koreans don't. Mm. <laughs> the South Koreans, you know, talk about a, a free, unified, you know, democratic government, um, you know, one country, one government. Um, and that's a very big difference. Um, and obviously has a lot of implications for, for North Korea. Um, so, you know, I think when, when Kim Jong-un made his latest speech um, and, and what he talks about South Korea now is, again, the recognition that if they're going to have reunification, the North Korean vision would be under the Kim regime. Um, and that, you know, and that that's not going to come together without conflict. Um, you know, this notion of a one country, two government is gone. Mm. Jenny, you know, some international scholars believe that when we try to make out 
uh, Kim Jong-un's tone and also his policy, the first and most concerning is that the policy changes are more motivated by his desire to justify the use of nuclear weapons in the future conflict. So in other words, again, there's no direct relationship with South Korea anymore. You know, again, that plan does not work. So again, right now, I guess North Korea understand I, sh I have the freedom or I do have the freedom continue to develop the nuclear weapons, you know, for our self-defense or for our self-interest. So do you agree or what is your assessment on that one? So basically that is the way that we should understand that to assess Kim's tone and policy, it's really to understand or justify the use of nuclear weapons for the future conflict. Does that make sense? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, there, there was no stipulation in, in any of, of, you know, North Korea's documents um, in, in their in their nuclear law that specified some special status for South Korea being free from the threat of North Korean nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, you know, this notion that th there is a bit of in the new rhetoric saying, for instance, that they no longer um, consider South Korean kin and, you know, and, and and, uh, and upholding the idea of one Korean nation. Mm. Um, but, you know, when North Korea talks about its nuclear weapons program, its target isn't, this target has always been South Korea first and, you know, U.S. now within, since 2017, you know, the ability to, to have um, ICBMs to be able to threaten the U.S. also. Um, but the original target has always been South Korea and has always been in the context of, you know, preventing an attack um, or, you know, being able to to prevail in an in inter-Korean conflict. Um, so I, I'm not sure that that is necessarily the reason why they're doing this now. Mm. Um, like I said, I, I think there's a greater recognition here that there isn't really the foundation for there isn't really um, the, the, a, a real reason to maintain that special status. Um, again, if South Korea can't move forward independently on an inter-Korean agenda. Mm. Jenny, let's keep on with our conversation. Now, lately, another report came out that, again, scholars to suspect that Kim Jong-un pledged to put three new spy satellites into orbit in order to monitor alleged threats from South Korea and the United States. I mean, again, we mentioned, you know, the joint effort between South Korea and United States many times, and it's not just a military cooperation, it's really this mutual trust and also this mutual benefit uh, for the two countries. Now, Jenny, what is your assessment to, to say that North Korean government pledged to put three new spy satellites in order to monitor the threat from South Korea and the United States. Number one, is North Korea capable to do that? And number two, what does that signify to the U.S. at this moment? Um, certainly they're capable of doing it. If they've gotten one up, they can put three more up, they can build, you know, these these uh, satellites. And, and certainly this is an area um, that they have uh, indicated 
you know, that the Russians have indicated that they're willing to help with, right? Mm. Um, so to help improve the the satellites, help improve the satellite launch vehicles. And, and that was, you know, one of the clear messages coming out of the, the Kim Putin summit last year. Um, and, and we should remember that the idea that North Korea, the, the idea of North Korean, you know, reconnaissance satellites, that itself is not sanctioned activity. It is the launch itself that's the sanctioned activity. And so the use of satellite launch vehicles um, to launch the satellites into orbit, um, the, that is the activity that's actually prohibited under um, UN Security Council resolutions because of um, the performance diagnostics it can get can have a military application as well for their ballistic missiles. Um, you know, I, I think on some level, it's not necessarily a bad thing for North Korea to have better intelligence. And this was, you know, one of the concerns that we had when North Korea announced its um, security, its nuclear law last year. And the idea that there was, or back in 2022, is, um, you know, they have five conditions under which they would consider nuclear use, three of which are preemptive and perception-based. Mm. And the question was always, well, how are they getting information? How accurate is that information? How, um, how robust is their ability to gather information um, that would give them, you know, are they perceiving things right? Um, if they're based solely on humans, if they're basically, you know, on, on human intelligence or signals intelligence, um, and, you know, if they're, you know, if they can add one more component to that, that would help them see a more accurate picture, hopefully, and, or at least give them different points of information to consider, um, you know, I think that's, that's not a bad thing. Um, South Korea obviously is also trying to improve its um, surveillance capabilities, um, but, you know, doesn't launch its own satellites. <laughs> mm. And so a lot of, you know, almost every country has reconnaissance satellites in the air, um, but very few countries actually have the ability to launch them themselves. Jenny, one more question before we talk about the U.S. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of South Korea. I mean, again, you mentioned over and over again that the tone of the voices and also this political rhetoric come out of the South Korean government completely different. So in other words, very harsh, extremely critical towards North Korean government. Now, this question might be silly, but I hate to use the word insecurity. I mean, too often we tend to say, economically speaking, or even from this political aspect, that North Korea might not be at advantage. But right now, we're seeing how the table has turned. Can we say, or I mean, is it even safe to say, that South Korea appear to be more insecure when it comes to North Korea? So that's why it's saying, hey, I know there's a bear. I keep on poking the bear, but it's not because I'm interested. I just want to make sure the bear understand I got something much bigger behind me and I need to send the message stronger because the bear is not going anywhere. So I just need to make sure if I look vulnerable, if I look fearful, I will be wiped out immediately. So does that make sense? So again, which side is more insecure at this moment? And is that really a South Korean perspective or is it really to say, hey, 
we are standing firm with the U.S. and don't you dare to tread on us. What do you say to that? I, you know, I do think there's insecurity on both sides of the DMZ. Um, even though, you know, South Korea has, you know, a more, um, a better conventional army. It might be a smaller conventional army than what uh, North Korea has, but it's better. It's, you know, technologically better. Mm. Um, the equipment that they have is better. Um, the resources that they have are better, even if they have a smaller army. And plus, you know, the U.S. presence there, 28,500 troops, permanent troops, U.S. troops on the ground in South Korea, mm. um, you know, a real commitment, a real demonstration of the commitment that the U.S. has to our mutual defense treaty, to our to our alliance. Um, so, you know, I, I think in some sometimes in the U.S. we sort of baffle over why uh, the South Koreans are um, do tend to be as insecure as they are. Mm. <laughs> Um, but uh, but it's real. And I think especially after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, this really has heightened anxieties um, in, in East Asia, both in, in South Korea and Japan, but especially in South Korea of what could happen, mm. right? Could North Korea decide that it also, you know, wanted to start a war? We have a, sort of a conflict own geopolitical environment at the moment. Um, and, you know, not only did that happen, but it came, you know, close around the same time, um, or not around the same time, but like not long after, you know, the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. And so certainly, again, like the, the arrangement and the relationship that U.S. has with Afghanistan is very different than what mm -hmm. we have uh, with South Korea, but it it still plays at the possibility, um, especially, you know, every few years, you know, Trump had certainly talked about withdrawing troops from South Korea, mm. but he wasn't the first U.S. president to do so. There's been at least two or three other occasions in history where the U.S. has wanted to withdraw troops or at least, you know, drastically draw down troops on the Korean Peninsula. And the idea that Trump could come back again and that could be one of his, you know, um, one of his goals, it could be one of his goals, um, you know, that that's always a possibility. And I think because it's always a possibility, um, there's, and North Korea now has nuclear weapons, um, there, there's always a little bit of anxiety, right? Mm. Of like, does North Korea have the advantage over South Korea if the U.S. isn't there? Mm. If and especially now with South, with North Korea having the ability to hold the U.S. also under a nuclear threat, um, you know, and the idea of if there's conflict already ongoing in the region, if there's a multi-front conflict, I think there's a lot of questions of you know. How does the U.S. respond if something happens on the Korean Peninsula? Certainly, we have troops there, conventional troops there, um, but is there um, is there a way that the U.S. can be prevented from you know a, the kind of robust response that would happen if there wasn't you know other conflict going on in the world, sort of thing? So, so that yeah, there is definitely insecurity on both sides, and now we're stuck in this. Um, kind of escalation spiral where one side will do something, the other side will have 
you know, muscular responses because neither side wants to look like it, it can be intimidated. And so instead they, they up the ante that then the response ups the ante a little bit more. And so we're, we're caught in this now where it's very hard for either side to start to back down without it looking like they're conceding to the other. Um, and, and so it does make for a very tense, very volatile, um, very unpredictable uh, security environment at the moment. Jenny, let me ask you the last question. Let's talk about the role of U.S. Again, according to the article, that some believe that Washington should also continue sending nuclear-capable submarines, bombers, and other U.S. military assets to the region in order to show Pyongyang that the U.S. stands ready and able to defend South Korea. Again, another piece of reality that we're talking about today is this political chaos in the U.S. No one would like to see, again, I'm repeating the cliche over and over again, no one would like to see this rematch between Joe Biden and former U.S. President Donald Trump. But scholars' assessment is Kim Jong-un prefers, or perhaps prefers, Donald Trump. I mean, again, given the fact they met each other, and then that was a mutual dialogue, and of course that Donald Trump's personality was loud. I mean, there's no hiding that one. But also, Jenny, you mentioned that Donald Trump, he vowed many times that he, he was ready to pull the troops out of South Korea anytime. But again, going back to the point, as we continue to move forward, do you think that the U.S., particularly for this upcoming election, is ready to bring the negotiation back on the table with North Korea. I'm not going to ask you who's going to do a better job, but who do you think or what kind of personality you think should be able to shoulder such major responsibilities when we look at this unpredictability of North Korea? Your final thoughts. That, that's, that's a million-dollar question, Jenny. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I can tell you, you know, the North Koreans obviously don't like Biden. Mm. That's, <laughs> um, that's a good start, by I, the way. But yeah, like, they, they definitely don't like Biden. Um, I, I think there's, you know, even now, if, if there was a notion that the U.S. was willing to do something mm. to get back to any kind of negotiations with the North Koreans, um, there's, we also run into the problem of, you know, the North Koreans are very transactionally minded mm. um, and they're getting a lot from Russia. Um, and especially, you know, that military cooperation piece of the puzzle is something that no one, no country has been willing to do with North Korea since, you know, the end of the Soviet Union. So um, there, there's very, there is really no country right now. Um, that's going to give North Korea a better offer than what the Russians are doing, mm. e even China. Mm. And, and that really limits um, the interest that North Korea pays to these relationships. Um, it very, and it, it limits sort of what, you know, what is possible, what might spark um, some interest, you know, some opportunity. Um, under, a, under a Trump administration, it's hard to say um, I'm not sure that the North Koreans necessarily believe that Trump could do things in a second term that he couldn't do in a first term. Um, and let's remember that, you know, the 
the Trump administration for that for 2017 was fire and fury. It wasn't mm. all love. Mm. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that there's going to be a good relationship opportunity between the U.S. and North Korea, um, especially because North Korea's um, stance on its own nuclear weapons program has has fundamentally changed since 2017, since 2018, since the last time Trump was president. Um, the the relationship between Trump and South Korea is really unclear, like what that would be if it's going to revert back to that sort of antagonistic position that that Trump had before, um, or if there's room for that to evolve given the different personalities, you know, that are now in play. Um, but if there's the possibility again of, of Trump trying to, you know, threaten to withdraw troops again and stuff, you know, certainly that, that does, uh, that is something that North Korea likes to see. <laughs> um, so, you know, but, but whether that translates into a coherent strategy um, or, you know, something that's actually oper that can be operationalized, um, whether the North Koreans would be, you know, open to any kind of negotiations with the U.S. under either president is really unclear. Well, let's just say if Donald Trump were to debate with Nikki Haley or with Joe Biden, and that would be one of the important topics that we should definitely ask. And of course, that today it's not just about the war in Ukraine. It's not just about the unpredictability of North Korea. It matters at the end of the day, it's everyone cares that the foreign policy and the future for the country.